Andrew Brownell, it's a pleasure to have you back in the studios with us here at All Classical Portland. It's been a while. It's been a few years. Yes, yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me back. <laughs> I still have uh, fond memories of you coming over to uh, the All Classical Studios and playing some piano for us, doing some programs and, and previews of upcoming concerts as well. But you've, you've been here and there and pretty busy. Um, I wonder if you could give us just a nutshell version of that. I think you were... You were in London for a while, and now you are back in the States. Yeah, I, um, it depends how far back you want to go with the nutshell, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I spent 11 years in London, went there to do some postgraduate work, and ended up, uh, as I understand many Americans do, uh, spending rather longer than intended, uh, at least originally. And then, uh, yeah, about five and a half or six years ago, I accepted a job at uh, UT Austin, and I've been teaching there since. Yeah. Now, we're here primarily to talk about a new recording that you've just had released um, on the Divine Art label called Shades of Night, and it's solo piano music where you explore different composers' pieces that have night in the title or maybe were inspired by night in some respect. And I get a sense, a little bit of a, a pushback or resistance to our, our current situation we find ourselves in of constant illumination at night, street lights, and, uh, you know, there's there's no... There, there are very few places where you could find dark sky to be able to see oh, the stars. Yeah, yeah. And um, and this is just the world that we live in. But you're exploring, in some parts, music from a time when we did not have Edison's light bulb <laughs> all over the place. No, indeed not. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I really have been struck by the idea that, well, as I think I say in the liner notes, nighttime is... Uh, for us, we've had the light bulb for over a hundred years, well over a hundred years now. It's it's just another part of the twenty-four hour period. Whereas before that, you know, you didn't really go out at night. You certainly didn't travel great distances the way we do now. Um, it was depending on your cultural background. It, it was a time of superstition. Uh, mysterious things happened, and and that was what the reality of nighttime was for most of the composers and performers of what we think of as Western classical music. And so I hope I've uh, tried to recapture some of that mystery and fantasy uh, in the selections on this album. Andrew, the the composers are wide-ranging across eras, from the French Baroque up to the 1990s with Lowell Lieberman and everybody in between. Among these different styles or different imaginings of night, uh, there's a lot of imagination here in these pieces and some that was kind of a revelation to me too. Is there a commonality other than night that you found with these pieces? There's or a, a common thread, I mean, that runs through? There's a lot going on, actually. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> there is the night. There is also an attempt to appeal 
to both hardcore classical listeners and maybe people who know certain popular pieces of classical music um, but might not be quite, quite may not have gone as far down the rabbit hole, let's say. So, so I hope I've been eclectic in that balance. You know, the, the first track is the first movement of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, which everyone knows. And, right. And the final track is the Debussy Claire de Lune. But yeah, as you say, along the way, there's some Couperin, there's some Lieberman. Uh, and I like to think of those as tracks that uh, that latter group of people don't yet know that they love. Yeah. Uh, and that they will come to love that stuff uh, from listening to this album. There was also an attempt on my part to find a kind of harmonic narrative through the tracks. The, there are key relationships. There's a very specific order of key relationships if you uh, if you pay attention to the order of the tracks, which is, you know, it's uh, something that I find very satisfying to play around with when I'm coming up with recital programs and uh, recording things. And I know I'm not the only uh, musician who thinks this way. Some people don't pay a great deal of attention to it. I would like to think that even if listeners aren't consciously aware of what's happening in that regard, although by announcing it here, I've let the cat out of the bag, but uh, <laughs> even if they're not consciously aware of it, that it may have some, that it may provide some kind of thread or binding narrative on a subconscious level. Yeah. of the pieces and playing the pieces affect your your perspective on them? Did, did Were there revelations to you by playing them, by first finding that this order worked for the program, but also just like how did they sound when they're up against one another? Does Claire de Lune, for example, sound different to you now where where it is after coming coming after all of these other pieces? Oh, what a great question. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I would have to say it does, because, because you know, originally it's the third movement of uh, Debussy's Sweet Bergamasque. Yeah. Um, a sort of late, you know, early, early Debussy, but late 19th century, you know, this is what's left of French Romanticism kind of thing. Often played on its own, just yeah, like, a, like yeah. as though it were a standalone piece, and very pretty, and, and I think a lot of people just think of it as a pretty piece. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hadn't, I guess I hadn't really thought about how that piece is changed by uh, coming after things like the third <laughs> movement of the Brahms, uh, Brahms F minor sonata. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that third movement is, is it's, it's very substantial in the first place. Yeah. And, yeah. and you share some, some really great stories about those pieces. This is young Brahms. He's yeah. probably just met Clara and Robert Schumann, I would imagine. Yeah. But he must have been able to see their their deep love for one another, their great admiration for one another. And it, to me, it sounds like he's expressing that out of the piece. 
that love that he that he observes. It's possible. Yeah, that's uh, just my interpretation. Certainly, he would have uh, yeah. probably felt something for Clara as well. <laughs> I know, and that went on for decades, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's just that I think that's the longest track on the album, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah. just it, it, I don't know. To me, it's just profoundly beautiful. And then there's that little bit of poetry at the beginning by Sternau. And Brahms, like Chopin, but unlike Schumann, doesn't usually have these literary references. And so that in itself is unusual uh, for that to appear mm. at the head of a movement by Brahms. Although, as you say, maybe it is a, a, a reflection of uh, an early Schumann kind of influence upon him. Yeah. Um, but I find it very noteworthy for that. I'd love to hear your thoughts about Hindemith and the Bartok because these, and I'm going to shift slightly to Bartok because I'm thinking about his explorations of folk music and it seems like the exploration of folk music and this mystery of night, this ancient mystery of what's beyond the, the campfire, you know, what's <laughs> out in the dark. Yeah, I get yeah. a real sense of that listening to the Bartok, which is called the night's music mm -hmm. from the out of doors suite yeah it's uh I, I really love that piece I'm, I'm actually not a huge bartok player per se but uh out of doors is something i learned uh when i was younger uh, <laughs> and uh yeah the, the night's music is uh one of my favorite movements it's uh boy it's hard it's, it's much harder than it sounds but, uh, <laughs> and i think any pianist who's attempted it knows just how intricate uh, both rhythmically and, and digitally it is but uh, it's a, it's a strange one isn't it it definitely is part of the weirdness that you were talking yeah. about yeah it sounds yeah. spare but i imagine that the difficulty comes in in stringing this all together yeah yeah but also trying to find a character for the the uh, the different voices and I'm, I'm using air quotes when i when i use that <laughs> word um the different voices of that opening section because you have so much going on in each of it everything has to function on its own level mm -hmm. and, and have its own sound but it does sound like a bunch of insects and frogs kind of burping <laughs> in a nighttime scene and yeah. you hear this chirping over there and that fluttering by you and uh and then it all after, I don't know, about a minute of that, it kind of gives way to something that may sound ritualistic. There's something maybe primitive or pagan going on. Uh, that then livens up, and then we get... We finally get something that I would associate as being more iconically early Bartok. Mm. Uh, something a bit more dance-like with uh, sort of incisive but irregular rhythms. Although it's not in that 
kind of Eastern European harmonic world. It's very much the the other harmonic language mm. uh, that he was enamored of mm. at the time. And then things all start to come back together, and you have this magnificent apotheosis, if I can use that word, of, <laughs> of everything that we've heard coming back all together at once. And yeah, it's a, it's a weird piece, but I think it works marvelously uh, in the middle of the album. So, and then the most recent composer is Lowell Lieberman. So Lowell Lieberman's Nocturne Number no. 5, written in the 1990s, is that an opportunity to reach out to the composer or any reason to? Or do you feel like when you pulled this piece into the program that the music spoke to you? And It speaks to me. It, uh, I think it fits, once again, the weirdness theme of the night that you mentioned earlier. Uh, now you'll notice I've sandwiched it in between the two Cooperan movements, uh, which was a bit of a... I, I did question whether that was uh, going to be a smart idea because the two Cooperan movements are traditionally played back-to-back. -back. The second is a variation of the first. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, but I really wanted to put those three movements together in that order so that when you get to the second Cooperan, much like the Debussy Claire de Lune sounding like a different piece after all the drama that's come before it on the disc, have the birds of Couperin's nightingales, have they changed in some way uh, as a consequence of having been interrupted by this Lieberman nocturne? Mm. Uh, and it, maybe in that sense, it also functions a little bit like a reprise uh, does on a pop album. You know, sometimes you'll get a remix yeah. of an opening track later in the album. And I just thought that's a really interesting idea from a dramatic and narrative point of view, why don't we do that on classical albums? Yeah. I was looking over the um, all the recording credits and location, all that kind of thing. I was just tinyly surprised that the recording date was 2015. So you had to hold on to this recording for a while, or what? What? What's the story behind that? If you wouldn't mind sharing, uh, you are not the first to observe that or <laughs> ask about it. Yeah, um, there was a. Without getting into too much detail, there was a verbal agreement with. Uh, with a small label, which shall remain nameless, <laughs> uh, to release it. They, I'm sorry to say, dragged their heels a little bit on it. And when the pandemic hit, uh, as was so often the case with so many projects in the performing arts, that was kind of the the death knell. It was kind of in production hell, as they say, for a number yeah. of years. And then it really sank down to the seventh circle <laughs> uh, at that point. And, mm. and I thought, well, you know, time to find a new label. And... Uh, 
Divine Art has been really, really wonderful. They've been very helpful and very supportive. Uh, and so in that sense, I guess it was a serendipity. Great, great. A place that I recognize, St. Paul's Girls School in Hammersmith, Gustav Holst's old stomping exactly. grounds. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and I taught there for four years, actually. Oh, did you really? While I was in London. Oh, yeah. that's great. That's yeah. great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew Brownell, it's, it's been so... Great, great fun to be able to talk to you and, and see you again after these Likewise, many years. It's not, great to be great to be back. <laughs> not many of our listeners know that you and I go way back to the nineties. Yeah, <laughs> um, in the old all classical studios. Um, so it's great to have you here. And I, I guess I'll just say, you know, looking forward to the next project after sharing these recordings on the air with our listeners now. Thank you so much. <laughs>